All right, welcome to the second episode of A Matter of Principles, AWSC's podcast. I'm David Morrill, the Communications Director. With me today, I have Gary Kipp, AWSP's Executive Director, and Dr. Jean Sherritt. Uh, Jean was appointed to the Washington Student Achievement Council as Executive Director June 1st, uh, 2013, by, doc- uh, by uh, Governor Inslee. He's also been a professor at the Washington State University from August 2003 to late May 2020. Oh, sorry. Let's just do that one again. Okay. I'm here with uh, Gary Kipp, Executive Director of AWSP, and Dr. Jane Sherritt, Executive Director of the Washington Student Achievement Council. Uh, Dr. Sherritt was appointed by Governor Inslee in 2013. Previous to that, he was a professor at the Washington State University and the Director of the School Leadership Program. Gene, thanks so much for joining us today, and uh, you are, I think, uh, Washington's favorite educator everywhere <laughs> I go. Uh, people ask me, uh, have you talked to Gene lately? And uh, so there are so many people out there that you know, that you've connected with, that love the work that you're doing, and um, you shared with me a little bit earlier that... Um, you're looking at another transition in your life. You've held so many great positions um, and influenced so many different things uh, in the world of education in Washington State. And I know that all of your friends that are out there are curious to know what's in your future. You know, personally, you've accomplished so much, and we could talk about that. But before we do that, I, I'm interested, and I know other people are, is what you see in terms of uh, next steps for you. Um, I know there's a presidential race. It may be a little late to get into that, but um, what else are you thinking about, Gene? Well, Gary, I like to um, uh, build things, and I like to be uh, kind of a connector. The current job I have is an ideal job for me because it's connecting the dots between early learning, K-12, and higher education. And for too long, and no one's at fault at this, but for too long they were just separate silos. And there was conversation going back and forth, but it really wasn't about collaboration and about building partnerships. So this job is ideal because we really talk from cradle to grave and the importance of a continuum of excellence. Let's not compete against each other in sectors. Why don't we grow the pie instead of fighting over the same size piece of pie? And so this job has been ideal in that way. And so the current position I have allows me to connect people, build bridges, Um, and uh, really help students to attain, um, I think, lifelong dreams. Yeah. And so whatever you do in the next step, when you leave the the Student Achievement Council, Mm -hmm. you're looking for something that will have those things in it. I am, Gary. I'm looking for a challenge. Uh, What I like to do is build things. Uh, Yeah. Really, I, I like to be the architect of a culture where people and programs improve. I love being a teacher, I love being a principal, I love being a superintendent, I've loved every job I've had because it's been a job about lifting others up. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you've certainly done that, and I look back over uh, the great things that have happened here recently in terms of the relationship between universities and the K-12 system uh, in particular. Um, a lot of things are happening uh, in that realm so let's chat about uh, some of those things. Let's, I, I know that um, principals out there, high school principals in particular, are um, interested in uh, exploring dual credit, um, college credit in the high school, um, 
ways that now that we have 24 credit um, requirement for graduation, um, principals are wondering, how do I manage the schedule? How do I influence Mm -hmm. all of those things I need to influence in order to have kids have hope of uh, reaching the end uh, successfully? So you put together some things um, in your work uh, which ones do you think are going to make the most impact, and, and what are your thoughts about them? You bet, Gary. There's several things that I think are game changers. Uh, let me talk first about college-bound scholarship, and yeah. I know a lot of listeners probably are familiar with that. But just for those that are new to the profession, it's a program that was started in 2007. It's for 7th and 8th graders who qualify for reduced lunch. And if they sign up as a 7th or 8th grader, and they cannot sign up later than an 8th grader because it's part of the forecast going forward, if they maintain a two-point GPA or above and get no, and no trouble in school as defined by a felony uh, conviction, they have four years of college tuition waiting for them at the highest-priced public university in the state, which currently is the University of Washington. Translated in, in dollar terms, that's about $12,000 right now. And uh, they have that available to them. What's happened with that program is it has given the students the dream, and then schools have given them the support. And we started the program at 57%. Uh, This year we just hit 91%. So 91% of all the 8th graders in the state this year have signed up for a college-bound scholarship. Uh, That is unbelievable. That's that's 33,000 students currently in the 8th grade who, if they maintain a two-point GPA or above, no trouble in our school, um, and they apply uh, to to be accepted, of course, they have four years of college tuition waiting for them. It is an absolute game-changer. The only states that do a similar program are Indiana and Oklahoma, and our numbers far exceed that. Our students are graduating who are signed up from high school at between 15 and 19 percentage points higher than those their peer group who did not sign up. So... It is an absolute game changer. Graduation mm-hmm. rates are going up. Kids have the dream. They have the support. High school principals have completely stepped up and to uh, work on this project. And what I've done at the agency there is we have really gone out. I send middle school principals a letter every year um, to give them their data, how they can go to our portal and find information about their school. Same with superintendents. I give them a second letter um, if uh, we don't see those numbers rising a little bit. We offer to go out to those schools. We're all over the state with a team of four or five of us going to the schools, doing school board meetings. I go to every college-bound kickoff, which is usually on a Saturday. We had 1,000 people here two months ago at the University of Washington, Tacoma. We just had 800 people at Kent at Green River about two weeks ago. And it's a full day where four or five of us talk about the program. We have breakouts for parents on debt, on loans, on finance, on classes, etc. We have former college-bound students come back and talk about what a dream it made for them. We now have four cohorts, a freshman, sophomore, junior, and a senior class in college. More kids are going on to four-year than two, which surprises. High school GPAs are 373839 because they have to have those to get into the university systems. And they're persisting at higher numbers, and they're on course to graduate at higher numbers, not just in comparison to the peer group who didn't sign up, but to their entire group in the, in the campus setting right there. Proof pudding, give kids the dream, give them the support, bridge programs between high school and college, and I can give you some good examples in a minute who are poster child on that, um, and these kids are going forward. Yeah. So I'm, I'm one of thousands of people in our state who have listened to you speak more than once, and 
I know that um, hope for kids is at the core of your being, right. that that is um, who you are. Um, and this seems like it fits right into that. How, how does the funding work? Are, is the funding secure? Do we know that when this year's eighth graders uh, get to that point that the money will actually be there? for them? It will, Gary. It's part of a, another program we administer. It's called the State Need Grant. And the State Need Grant, the college-bound money comes from the State Need Grant. It's kind of the, the bank uh, of, of college-bound. And we've passed some recent legislation in here, too, where college-bound students actually go to the front of the line for the State Need Grant. Oh. So an institution gets so much money for the State Need Grant. In the past, they have a lot of discretionary uh, um, ability to use that money how they would like. So they didn't necessarily have to fund college bound, uh-huh. you know. Uh-huh. And remember that in universities, um, two things uh, that they are really concerned about constantly is who we fund and who we admit. And they do those on their mission. If your mission is to recruit diversity, college bound is the perfect example there. So right now we've got some legislation passed a year or two ago where college bound students move to the front of the line. So if you're a college-bound student, meet all those criteria, you're not going to be shoved out the door. Okay. Uh, legislature is completely committed to college-bound and the state need grant, and the funding is secure going forward. Yeah. Well, more, more and more kids will have their eyes set on um, high school graduation as just another step, not the end. And that's kind of what we're looking for. It's what principals have been working on for a long time. It's the culture that they're trying to create in their schools, mm-hmm. at the elementary, the middle, and the high school, that um, post-high school education is critical. So this is one of the things that sounds like it's going to going to be helping to get that mindset in the kids, mm-hmm. that that's something that is doable for them. Absolutely right. And you know, generation going forward in Washington uh, is is just an example of the many other 50 states. 49% of our K-12 population right now is on free and reduced lunch. Nationally, it's 51%. The population going forward to make this economy continue to work are the students who are first generation, low income, uh, ELL. And if we do not educate that population beyond high school, uh, we're just simply not going to make it as an economy. And so this is why this is such a game changer. Um, in 1995, if you were low income in this country, you had only a 5% chance of ever, ever getting a bachelor's degree. 1995, low income, 5% chance. 2015, 9%. Hmm. We've made significantly no progress. We've made no progress at a time. We have to make a dramatic shift. Um, Washington is the number one state for importing bachelor's and above degrees of the 50 states. Our employers, Microsoft, Boeing, all the others, are they have to run a business, and that's about people. And if they can't get them inside our state, they're going to go outside. And so we are importing California, Oregon, Colorado, New York, Florida. We're importing degrees and people that our own students are not getting. We currently have 25, almost 26,000 STEM jobs available in our state that we can't fill, and that number is going to go to 55,000 in the next three years. Mm-hmm. We don't, we're not filling the jobs for our young people. Yeah, College Bound is going to help us. Yeah, so that helps to get the um, mindset that that sort of expectation that probably your parents mm-hmm. and my parents had that we would go to college, that mm-hmm. we would do something after high school to continue our education, and and now we're trying to 
to get that in the in the heads of all kids uh, that are in the school. And so I know that there are some other things that are critical to making that work, and that is making it a stronger connection between what happens in K-12 and what happens in the universities. And the universities um, accepting what's going on in right. in the schools. Um, and so I know you've been working on such things as dual credit um, and bridge courses and those kinds of things. Do you see those as critical to this puzzle that we're putting together to try to change the the way kids think about um, what high school is for? Absolutely, Gary. I think what I hear from principals all over the state right now is a little program that a lot of them call moving the goalposts back before a lot of them thought that their uh, task ended on graduation day, June 6, 7, 8, 9, whatever it might be. But they're realizing right now that their work really does uh, um, mean something beyond high school. What does the student attain post-high school, one year, two years? If you graduate with a four-point and are unemployed four years later um, and, you know, and really struggling, what good has that particular thing been to you? So principals across the state are really building great bridges, and they're starting really at the middle school because we know that students make choices at the middle school level. They act upon them at the high school level. So drug use, other kinds of things are made, usually made by 5th, 6th, 7th grade if you're going to move that direction. They simply act upon them at high school. And so we are moving a lot of our counseling down to middle school in terms of career cluster planning, in terms of working with parents, in terms of thinking about college-bound, those things. And you're exactly right, Gary. Most of our first-generation parents um, don't know how to have conversation with their kids about college-going culture. What is debt? What's tuition? You know, what is cost? How is that different than price? How do you apply? Most of our low-income students, 70% of them, if they go on, apply at only one institution. Mm-hmm. And that's different. Most of our middle-income, high-income kids will apply 10, 12 places. One example, because they'll, they'll, they won't get accepted as low-income. They say, well, I guess I'm not, I'm, I won't go on. And so there's the, most of our low-income students do not know how to navigate the post-secondary system. We, uh, as educational leaders, really have an obligation to get down quickly to do parent training, principal training, counselor training, et cetera. And students, if they don't have a counselor, and, and right now our ratio is 1 to 5.15 in Washington, if you even have a counselor, most of whom were cut during their graduate yep. session. Yep. So where do students go? Uh, they, they, their parents would love to help them. They can't. They don't know the culture. Um, and many of our minority cultures are debt adverse. They're not going to get a loan to go to school. It's all cash culture. So they'll go to a trusted teacher. So what we're doing right now is going out and talking to teacher groups, middle school, high school, because students will come to you. So what do you know about those? And most of our teachers don't have a great um, awareness of post-secondary because they were middle income, and so they navigated the system fairly easily. It's hard for them to support uh, the low-income students in terms of some of that work. So we're out there on a regular basis with that, and that's why the college bound is so important because one of the things we did, um, we now recognize all the districts in the state that have high college-bound sign-up. And this year, uh, we have 100, uh, actually we have 112 schools that have 90, districts, excuse me, that have over 92% sign-up. <laughs> they all get a letter from the governor, which we started, and it was called a Gold Star Award. And I get all the time from principals and superintendents, news releases. Thanks for the letter from the governor signed personally by him. If you have a chance to come down to Tonino next Thursday night, it's on our agenda. Love to have you there. We're going to be recognizing our people. Uh So we have 110 districts now 
at 92% or above. This is up 20% over last year and 30% over the year before. So principals are really taking this seriously. Yes, they are. And, and look at this right here, yes, 100%. Mm-hmm. You know, it's incredible. We get 100% of anything. You know? <laughs> so I'm so happy and so proud of our principals, Gary, for stepping up and doing that. We do it by ESD. So when I go talk to the ESD superintendents, I give them their numbers. And uh, the superintendents have really stepped up. We, we, you know, one ESD 114, 97% of all kids in that it was by ESD. So we go there, and on the back, I always give them the exact numbers of what it looks like. I give them their portal mm-hmm. so they can find out exactly where they're at and track. And we go out and, and meet with parent groups on that. Gary, more directly to your question, though, uh, about bridges, um, one of the things we did beyond college bound is our dual enrollment. And dual enrollment is very important. It potentially is the biggest game changer in the next decade. And right now we have 185,000 students uh, in high school across the state who are in some form of dual enrollment. AP, IB, Cambridge, college and high school, running start are the typical programs there. Um, and if there are five of us in a, or ten of us in a uh, AP class, as an example, and five are high income, we all get an A, we all do very well in that AP class. Uh, the high-income students write the check for the credit, so they don't take that class again in the college. Other five of us who are low-income, got the same grade, performed just as well, don't have the income to pay for the credit. We have to take that class again. What's the likelihood of a low-income student going on to take that class? Yeah. Very little. So a lot of our students are graduating from high school with 12, 14, 18 credits, college credits, not counting Running Start. That's one of our programs. But And they then are more likely to enroll will have less debt, more likely to persist, and more likely to graduate. And we passed a, we got a bill passed last year for the first time ever in the state where we're paying, the state is picking up the cost for all low-income kids on dual enrollment. To pay for the credit, not necessarily the cost of the test. Correct. But the, to pay for the credit itself. Cost credit, yeah. So going back to my example, 10 of us in that class, um, the low-income kids get that credit paid for. Mm-hmm. Our original ask was that and we're going to push for this in the future, all credit, regardless of income, will be paid for by the state. It is a one-third savings for the state. The state It actually costs the state less to pay for the college credit in a high school than it would be to pay the university to give that set up that same course. Yeah. So it's a state saving, it's a personal saving, and it's an investment. We know that students who have any credit going forward are more likely to enroll. Yeah. So the dual enrollment program, whether it be IB, uh, AP, Cambridge College and High School or Running Start are absolute game changers, and it's going to be one of our highest priorities coming forward. And that is to get the state to pick up all the costs for all all college credit in high school. Mm-hmm. And that rolls into Smarter Balance Assessment then, yeah. because we've got all of our thirty-four community tech, all of our six public baccalaureates, and nine of our private institutions. Um, PLU, UPS, Whitworth, Seattle, et cetera, uh, to agree that if a student scored a three or a four on our Smart Balance Assessment, they would be able to skip over the placement exam to be accepted into an institution. They could then be eligible for college course-bearing credit at the high school level. And that has been a game changer for us because now students are saying, oh, Smart Balance Assessment means something. Yeah, it has an end, It has an outcome for me. And before, as you guys both know, as we know, uh, that 
these assessments have to have some meaning to a student. The reason that we had so many opt-outs this year on 11th grade Smarter Balance Assessment is that it wasn't required, didn't mean anything, and it conflicted with ACT, SAT, uh, district testing. So it was a, classes. Yeah, it was another assessment that the students and the parents said, I, I'm not sure why I'm doing this. You know. Right. Now our sophomore things were over 90%, mm-hmm. and the scores were in the 70s. So the sophomores took it seriously because it was a required assessment. So we know the students are capable. Yeah. So the, as I understand, the universities are accepting the threes and fours for placement, mm-hmm. but not for admission. Are some of them accepting that as part of the admission yes, they are. criteria as yeah, well? They are, Gary. Most of our universities now are really looking at a cornucopia, a comprehensive right. admissions packet, right. to include an essay, to include recommendations, community service, SAT, ACT. They're really looking at, especially your select ones, because they're trying to discriminate on really fine lines between who can come in. University systems, as measured by national criteria, really presents a false picture. The picture is about who I admit, who succeeds within what we call time to degree, four year, and are they employed afterward. And you can game the system pretty easily because if I'm a select university, um, I can go ahead and make sure that uh, I select only those that I know are going to do well because they have a history of that, you know. Mm -hmm. And so my metrics are always going to look good. But I may, uh, if I'm not measured on, on low-income minority ELL, then I'm not going to bring that population in. I want to look good in U.S. News and Report, and their metrics are about my foundation support, time to degree, yeah, entering GPA, exiting GPA. Yeah. So I can gain the system, and that's what the selects do. Among our Ivy League selects across the country, less than 5% um, of their enrollment is on, is on merit. The rest is on legacy. Mm-hmm. Name, family name. Yeah. Who attended. Who attended. And what can they bring to the institution with respect to financial and political clout? Yeah. And so uh, in Washington here, we you know we have record enrollments in some of our institutions and others that are struggling there as well. Um, so we are really working hard. All the institutions have really bought into this. Um, a three or four, terrific. My own personal opinion, I, I would have liked to have seen Smarter Balance 7th at the sophomore year, not the junior year, because I think it gives us two years to support, two years for the students to take college course credit, two years to remediate a particular skill. Right now, when it comes at the end of the junior year, we have one year, and many of our students at the end of the one or two might just say, you know what, can't make it, not going to do it. Exactly. So we're building courses now with, in conjunction with our high school faculty, and our college faculty, and what if a student gets a one or a two, what does a math course look like for a one? What's it look like for a junior take, who got a two? And if you get, if we're building what called core to college courses, bridge programs, uh, I get a two on a math assessment, I take this particular course in high school, I get a B or above, I jump over now the placement exam. Is it seen by the universities as being equal to having gotten a three or, it does. or a four? Yeah. So they're from an ed- yeah. Admissions or placement standpoint, it's you bet. it's seen as the same. And the reason it is, Gary, because we work with her faculty. Yeah, to create the curriculum for exactly. the courses. High school faculty, college faculty, we agree this is a course. Yeah. And my understanding mm-hmm. from uh, listening to others talk about that, that the curriculum is coming in modules that yes. mm-hmm. um, teachers or schools that wanted to sort of experiment with this 
that they could just take a module and right. see what it's like. I can see this being a real challenge for mm-hmm. um, particularly the smaller schools to get a section mm-hmm. of their day mm-hmm. um, to teach one of these courses. Um, Absolutely right. So yeah. it'll be a smaller population, and so you've got the challenge of mm-hmm. small class sizes and how do we sustain that and who teaches it and all of those kinds of things. Exactly. Uh, and that's where college and high school is an important vehicle. Uh-huh. <clears throat> because if I'm in the faculty and and I and there are 15 kids who have got a one and I'm teaching that course next time and I'm trying to get them a two by their junior year and then I get them into a three, you know, all of a sudden it makes, they get credit for it. And there's we're trying to build incentive for the student and incentive for faculty. This seems to be a good vehicle because before the old thing was, oh, we're not talking to you. You know, we admit and we're going to criticize Sixty percent of all the students who enter one of our community colleges need remediation in math. You know, twenty percent who enter four-year baccalaureate need remediation in math. Yeah, trying to re- and that can be. And what happens? You <coughs> you take those courses. You you don't get credit though. So you, mm-hmm. these are non-credit courses. Right. Mm-hmm. So but what they happens? Help replacement. They help replacement. What happens though on these remediation courses at the at the college level is that I go further into debt. I'm oh, not yeah. moving toward attainment though. I'm not getting credit for it. Running in place. Running in place. Mm-hmm. And so this whole piece, if we do this right on smarter balance assessment, four to college courses, three to four, if we can incentivize the system, we are a game changer, especially if we pick up the cost of credit, because that incentivizes both, incentivizes the students to do well. Yeah. Reduces my debt, increases my likelihood that I'll go forward, and increases my attainment. Right now in the state of Washington, um, you know, we're 48th in the nation in terms of our kids going on to post-secondary ed. We're one of the lowest states. Our students are not going on. Mm-hmm. We're 49th in the nation in support for higher ed. Where only one state gives less money than we do, and that's uh, Florida by $2. Hmm. So we have not invested in higher education in the state, and we are paying the price through the importing of, of uh, bachelors and above. Yeah. As long as we're talking about assessments... Um, I'm curious to get, maybe you can help our listeners understand. I know you do some things and rubbing shoulders with the Department of Ed. And Obama has just come out wanting to limit testing and the apparent contradiction that is with the importance they place on testing. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a, any thoughts on on that whole thing of where where the federal government is going with their how they seem to at one time overvalue um, state assessments and now there is apparently a backlash that they're saying now we have to regulate the amount of testing that's going on. Yeah, Gary, I I understand that right? uh, You do. You said it perfectly and I think what's happened is that No Child Left Behind was really a punitive system. Yeah. There were good parts of it. The good parts was the disaggregation of data to make sure no population was left behind. Good part, no problem. Um, bad part, punitive in nature. You know, we're going to take away resources at a time when you need more resources. <laughs> I need more money. I need more time. I need more staffing uh, because we, I think all of us believe that all students can learn at very high levels given uh, quality instruction and quality support. And those are the two, and both those things cost money. Yeah. Quality to your quality of support. So when you take those away, when you um, don't provide the incentive uh, for these low income schools, um, sure they're going to. 
they're going to, you know, just uh, spiral downward, which is what's happened, actually. Um, and there's been a big push on state rights versus federal rights, so I think that's part of this. Um, I wish the Obama administration had listened early on. This has been around for the, all eight years. This is not new information, I think. Uh-huh. And I think the lack of listening to people, uh, boots on the ground, or educators and principals in particular, would have been very, very helpful. We could have changed this. Uh, I believe that assessment is important if it's used to inform instruction. It must be informative. Uh, and, and formative in that regard and used for decision-making and change instructional program and strategies. And also it has a summative value, of course. But, um, you know, I'm not opposed to 3 through 8, and I'm not opposed to a sophomore test uh, that helps students in our last two years. I think those are all fine. But over-testing is a result of many, many things. There's district. First of all, there's classroom. Then there's district. Then there's state. Then there's federal. Oh, did I, say there, did I also say there's corporate? Mm-hmm. SAT? PSAT, ACT, you know, a lot of that, that's, you clump all that together. It's not just a district problem. We've got to talk about it, state, federal, and what's what's an ideal, what's a nice model in a system. And uh, as a teacher, I like formative assessment because I could continually change my instructional strategies when I found out things were not working I was doing. Um, and uh, But I think we've moved away a lot from formative and we've gone to summative as an evaluation of the system which is what assessment was never meant to do, but we use it in that regard. Yeah. I know you recently um, received an award for science and the work that you've personally done uh, in that area, and I've been able to watch some of that because it was connected to some of the work that we've done. Mm -hmm. Tell us what that award was, was about. Yeah, it's called the Valerie Logan uh, Leadership and Science Award. It's uh, given by the Systems uh, Institute for Systems Biology, Dr. Leroy Hood, who is a noted uh, geneticist who mapped the entire uh, genetic code for the human species. His wife, Valerie Logan, was also a noted scientist, and she was extremely in- involved in science literacy. So the award was started three years ago for someone who has done uh, something to increase scientific literacy Uh, within the preschool, K-12, and higher education community. And thanks to the good work of AWSP uh, a number of years ago, uh, and under your leadership, frankly, Gary, uh, we were able to institute a number of programs at Sleeping Lady Conference Center where we um, offered opportunity for principals to come to Sleeping Lady to learn how to... um, look at science, be, uh, really have more science literacy, how to observe and evaluate a science lesson, what does good science teaching look like. Uh, classes were full, summers were full, people wanted it very much. It was one of the signature programs, I think, of AWSP for years to come. Um, and it was well attended, and part of the award is based upon that. Mm-hmm. Part of it is based mm-hmm. upon the other good work you did, and that's on the principal evaluation framework and guide where we train principals on, again, how to look at a science lesson, what that looked like. The guide that you guys put together helps uh, in that regard. And then um, I've been writing for years on um, science education yeah. personally, and, and it's a big big issue for me. Good for that. you. Congratulations. Thank That's, you. Uh, I was very excited when I heard that. that Thank you. Great. Gene, you've been um, very generous with your time this afternoon. I'd like to close with one question that Mm -hmm. I'd love to get your perspective on. Mm -hmm. When you step away from uh, education and we look back at all of the structures, um, you see the principal as the one that is responsible for actually making sure that all of the regulations and initiatives are enacted, Mm -hmm. that 
That's the role that they play. And as they look outside of their school, they see the Department of Ed influencing that. They see the state board influencing that. They see the legislature influencing that. They see the standards board influencing that. They see their own Mm -hmm. local school board influencing that. If you were to start all over again, what would a system look like Because that seems so daunting when you see that these things are coming from so many different directions. And it makes the job of the principal sometimes really difficult just understanding what the new lay of the land is. And I've never seen a legislative session, for example, where the legislators got together and all agreed to do nothing (laughs) so that we could actually have a year to implement what was done the last time. Mm -hmm. And so there's always this churning of new expectations that they've got to sort of live through. And it seems to me like there's just so many different uh, influencers mm-hmm. on the expectations uh, for principals. If, if you were if you were the man, you are the man, <laughs> if you were the man with authority. Yeah, there we go, there we go. <laughs> um, what would it look like? Thanks, Gary. Great. That's a fabulous question. Um, you know, if you tip everything out of the boat, would you put it back in the same way? And the answer is, of course, we wouldn't. We'd become over-regulated, you know, yeah. over-controlled, um, under-authorized, and given more responsibility. Principals have the toughest job in the system, in my opinion, right now. Leadership matters. It matters a great deal. And great schools are led by great leaders because great leaders attract great teachers. And the quality of the teacher is the strongest association to the quality of learning in the classroom. And that's why I'm such a fan of principal leadership. I just think they are the absolute key to great, great, great schools. Um, I would greatly, greatly reduce the regulation, simplify the system. And I just have three words in our agency, simple, simple, simple. Uh If you can make it easier, make it easier. If you can cut the rhetoric, cut the rhetoric. If you can say it in two words, do yeah. You know, just and we just simply have to cut back. I think there's going to be a big pushback, and I see it across the country right now. First of all, it's with assessment, and we're seeing what that resulted in. You're going to see a lot more pushback, I think, in years ahead about more uh, local control, about more um, building control, those kinds of things. And I think um, that will be very healthy because I think principals will finally um, have some ability to have a greater influence over their uh, their leadership style. Mm-hmm. Leadership is is the hardest job because leaders build culture. Building culture is the hardest thing you'll ever do in any leadership position because culture takes time and yeah. it takes trust. And trust takes time and trust is earned every single day. Every every action, every behavior, everything you do is watched by everyone. And you have to be competent, consistent, have integrity, be a person of character. And I always tell principals all the time, if you don't have values, you can't add value. So operate off core values. And core values are time, what's important in the institution, what are we going to focus on, we can't do it all, what can we do, let's do that right. So in good schools that I travel with, principals constantly are talking about simplicity mm-hmm. and, and conciseness, and I always value that. Yeah. Well, I know you well enough to know that your values drive all of your work. And on behalf of all of the educators that are out there in the state that love you like I do, thank you for the <laughs> work that you do. And we're excited to know what the next step in, in your career is going to be and how we can stay connected with that. Uh, we're very excited about that. So thank you for taking some time with us. To, uh, you were the one that uh, our board said we want to hear from Gene Sherrod. And so thank you for taking some time out to, to share your thoughts with us and all the things that 
that you put in place with the Student Achievement Council. Thank so, you. Thank I would you. say after that conversation, we have a pretty smart board. <laughs> the requesting gene. Very smart board. So. Thank you, David. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Any concluding remarks you'd like to make? No, I just uh, just an ultimate respect for principals and the work they do, and um, I admire them daily because I see their work daily and I see the results, whether it be dual enrollment or college-bound or building culture. Uh, I just see this huge effort that they I'm just very proud of them, very proud of them. Well, thanks so much for your time. Mm-hmm. We enjoyed it, and I know our listeners will enjoy it as well. Good. Thank you, David. Right. Thank, Thank you, Gary. Thanks, Gene.